0: welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse, And I'm Michelle. And today we have a very special interviewee with us, Tona Brown, who is the first transgender woman to ever perform at Carnegie Hall, the first African-American transgender woman to ever perform for a sitting president. She also runs her own studio called Aida Studios that teaches strings and voice. And she has an EP on iTunes called This Is Who I Am. We are so excited to interview you today.
1: Oh my goodness, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, so we just kind of wanted to start off with some, you know, some general icebreakers. So you are both an opera singer and a violinist, which is crazy. Like, I can barely play the piano, so I'm already <laughs> so impressed by you. <laughs> <laughs> I read in one of your bios that you actually also play viola.
2: Yeah, yeah, At conservatory. You have to take your instrument partner or whatever and so yeah. I wanted my minor to be vocal music, but they were like, no, you have to take in the string family. So I was like, okay. So um, I did viola.
1: That's
0: awesome. That's incredible. Yeah. So yeah. you're really triple threading on us right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> we love it. Well, you have to, to survive, especially if you're doing music 100% of your income and everything. So you have to switch it up.
1: That's so true. Yeah. You got to be able to do it all. Yeah. 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 So since we were just talking about violin and viola, do you have any dream violin pieces or concertos that are like you either have performed in or are like on your wish list?
2: Well, I think on the wish list, it would be Tchaikovsky just because before I left Shenandoah, my teacher was thinking that that was something that I should be playing. And so we had looked at it and I decided not to get my master's. So I was like, I never ended up learning the piece, so that would mm-hmm. be one. Also, the Dvorak Violin Concerto is yeah. also amazing. Yeah, that's one that I would love to learn. But as far as dream pieces, I love Sarasate. So I would mm-hmm. like. I actually was just oh. telling a friend of mine that I should work on Carmen Fantasy again because it's yeah. been so many years, and it was one of the pieces that inspired me to play a lot of the virtuosic repertoire as well as the Brook Violin Concerto. And then when I was 14, I was touring around in my region playing the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. So mm-hmm. that was like my ultimate favorite at that time because I was young and you just have all these notes and it's fun. And I also yeah. was playing Zagornis Bison. So that was another one by Sarasate. Those I want to put back into my repertoire now. Yeah. yeah. Usually audiences love things that you can sing. So those mm-hmm. are the pieces that I really play more prolifically now. Meditation from Thais, the slower things, even if it's fast, it's like Mozart or, you know, something like that compared to a lot of the crazy virtuosic stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, That's so true. Audiences always appreciate when they can continue to hum the tune they just listen to after they exit the, the hall. That's very true.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's why I was thinking about Carmen because... Not only do I love her role in general and the music, but the Carmen fantasy is just an amazing work. Just Mm -hmm. amazing work. So I was thinking about that recently. I was like, you know what? Maybe I should pick that back up and like start playing it again. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Definitely. And strings and voice kind of are a natural pairing because they are similar in how they work, how you phrase. And so when it comes to singing, like what's a dream role you'd love to play? Or a dream piece you'd love to sing.
2: <laughs> well, a dream role I would love to do is Delilah. Like, I just, I yeah. love it from from front to back. I just really, really love it. Carmen would be great as well. Yeah. I love the fact that she was the woman of the evening. You know, just yeah. things that are a little out there, but that are strong feminist sort of messages. Which is at least the way I look at those roles. Mm-hmm. If I was a dramatic soprano, I would definitely have been singing Macbeth.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a role. <laughs> <laughs> that, man, talk about a dream role for sure. Yeah, that
2: is a beast. And also, Eboli. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting because the teachers who have made the biggest difference in my life have been those who did those roles because they understood mm-hmm. a rearing unique instrument. One that is bigger and the problems that we have, you know, and all of those things. So they were the ones that were the most instrumental. Dolores Zajic in particular, going to her master classes, having her sing at my high school. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> you know, wow. Yeah. <laughs> at the governor's school for the arts. I'd never heard anyone who had a voice that large before. And yeah. so I went to a very competitive high school for, for music in Norfolk, Virginia. And Denise Grays was supposed to perform, but something happened. There was a conflict. And so the Met sent Delora and she just changed my entire perspective on what singing was. And at the time I wasn't singing. I was playing concertmaster of the orchestra Mm -hmm. because, of course, in high school, I had not transitioned yet. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what I was doing. And just to hear that voice at a young age. It just changed my entire life and it gave me so much more respect for singers, I think. Her approach is more scientific, vocal mm-hmm. science. And I just thought singers were just these egotistical people, uh, just the way they,
1: <laughs> just many, the way they many are
2: <laughs> the way they walked around our school and, you know, and it was just so much extra. And I was just, Oh God, here come the singers and, you know, you know, just all of that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah oh my gosh i love hearing you say that because that's something that jesse and i talk about on the podcast like literally all the time oh like, yeah it's uh. kind of the the interesting relationship that singers can have with instrumentalists and kind of like the stereotypes that we have for one another it's always just really funny <laughs>
2: well the biggest one i remember just to be cute is that
1: singers can't count oh yeah <laughs> Except
2: that's not cute for it's us. Not, exactly. It's not, well, now I'm one of them. So, you know, I'm just like, well, it's One of us. One of us. Right. right. Well, yeah. I mean, hello, the phrasing is so important. And so you can't do these different things. And so, but as an instrumentalist, you're sitting there like, that says a dot. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Right. Yeah. You
2: know. So yeah. So I grew up from that. I definitely grew up from that, and having a better understanding as to why singers sing and do the things that they do with the phrases. And it. And I'll also say that every instrumentalist should take voice lessons because when people get so emotional when they hear me perform, they don't realize it's because I started singing and because. I've always had this natural ability to hear a phrase and think of how to change it to fit maybe my own experience or like, because as a person of color who grew up in the church and also in an urban environment, you're so used to rhythm. So it's so funny because even as kids in these opera programs, You know, me and my girlfriends would sit there and be popping it like it's hot to like Brahms. Like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute.
0: (laughs) You know, like,
2: like, wait a minute. There's a beat. You know what I'm saying? So like, I tend to like music that is a lot more rhythmic. One of my pieces that I was gonna go to the colleges and do this year was Lalo Symphony Español. Mm. I just love that piece. I feel like it's not performed yeah. enough. Many pieces that are like that. And right now I'm working on Brooks Scottish Fantasy for the same reason. You know, those cultural things, those tunes that are very important to different cultures all around the world, I like to find. And if there's a version of it for a violin, I'm like, wow, I really like this particular tune. How would this sound on violin? So if you guys go to my YouTube, you'll hear I play around with a lot of those things. And you'll hear little snippets of me practicing, you know.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually something that I really like. Because I've seen that you post, I've seen like the AIDA Studios Facebook page. And then like you post some videos of yourself practicing on your Instagram. And I love that. Because I think it is it is really fun for as a vocalist who like has never played a violin before to kind of like see your thought process and honestly just like watch you play and see the decisions that you make. It's it's really cool to watch as someone who's not an instrumentalist. Well, thank you. I mean,
2: it is a lot involved because when you're trying to mimic, which is that's how you know that you're good at as an instrumentalist. We're trying to mimic what you all naturally do. If they don't do it, then it just doesn't come across the same. It's not Mm that it's not good. I mean, you can look at old recordings and hear these violinists and everything is just very meticulous. And that's great, but I don't feel emotionally attached to that. Even in concert, I just, I've never have. That's why my favorite violinists were ones that a lot of people just didn't like. And it Mm -hmm. was not because they weren't technically great, but it was because they took risks. And so mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to have a coach, Dr. John McCormick, who forced us to take risks. And he would have you come into his home and you would have almost like a master class every week. It would be like a two or three hour lesson. Oh wow. He would stand on one end of the room because his ears were really sensitive. He used to travel with the New Worlds, um, string quartet or something. He was 70 something by the time I met him. Oh, yeah. And he would pick certain students and you would stand on the opposite end of whatever space he had. And you would have to go through all your scales in two bows with doing him octaves and thirds and six. And I mean, just over and over and he had perfect pitch so he would tell you you know what you have a really good expressive ear or this is that because you played the sixth and the seventh flat and you're like oh no you know yeah He's <laughs> like no 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 that no that's a good thing you know like just different things that we can do as string players compared to if you're playing a temperate instrument like the keyboard or organ mm-hmm. and I think those are the things that stuck with me him and also being inspired by Daryl Husky, who was my first black violin teacher that was also male. So it was Mm -hmm. interesting to be able to see him play all of this stuff and inspire all of us that we could do it.
1: That's awesome.
0: Yeah, great teachers make all the difference. And I love that that teacher didn't put people down for how they played it, instead put it in the context of, like, there is a purpose and a reason and a place for this. I think that's really wonderful. And I think that's important because... We talked about this a little bit in one of our, I think probably the first episode of this podcast, but that thinking that there's one right way to play a piece is the death of music. Exactly.
2: Exactly. I will say, and people laugh at me all the time. I just don't like going to those academic recitals. Like if you're not, you know, nothing against what we had to do in school, but you need to have your own voice. And sometimes your own voice as me being an activist is one of the reasons why I always sing Margaret Bonds and certain female composers. They have a unique voice and they're using all these skills we learn in school to express those things. And when you listen to I Too with Langston Hughes' words and those things, to hear how they were able to put those things together and to be revolutionary during that time. You know, so those are the things that I like to present to my audiences. You know, unique but beautiful pieces that will send you home thinking about what I was saying. If, if I'm going to sing it, that's what I want it to be. I don't want it to be le fleur. We're just talking about fleurs and birds all the time. Like you, <laughs> it, there, there's a time and a place for that. But because I do so much crossover work, so, for instance, a lot of people will call me for an award show. No one wants to hear that there. You know, yeah. it's not that it's not beautiful, not that there's not a place for it, not that you can put it cohesively in a program and it's cute, but people want something that's going to make them move or be emotional in some kind of way. And, mm-hmm. and on top of it, you only have, as you all know, you only have like two minutes. Now, that's yeah. nothing in, our, in none of our repertoire, whether it's opera or whatever, You're not just singing for two minutes. So Mm -hmm. you have to figure out a way to splice it or do something. And so it took a little while coming from conservatory training and just everything is like you have to do everything in three movements and you can't skip something that doesn't work in the real world anymore for what we do as artists. And I, I really would implore for more people to experiment with that. It's not that people don't like classical repertoire, but it is what you choose. Mm It's what you choose for that particular event. And you don't have to dummy it down. So for the Out Music Awards, I played Vivaldi's Presto from, what was it? The Summer of Four Seasons, which was Mm -hmm. one of the first pieces that encouraged me and inspired me to play the violin. Mm. My stepfather bought a little tape back then. It was tapes. And brought his little tape and I kept listening to it. I would just get so emotional listening to all the different moods and and how vivaldi was expressing you know summer compared to winter compared to spring and so i did that it was something that was familiar it was fast i got these big old extensions to be a little bit more (laughs) to be more dramatic you know with these braids and i'm swinging them around and doing and we got a stand ovation But I was so nervous they'd never had a classical performer before for that event. And the person before me was swallowing a microphone. How are you gonna beat that? Oh (laughs) What are we gonna
1: do? Oh my gosh. Wow. (laughs) That's so funny. So you know, because it was a
2: rock performer and part of her like thing was like swallowing this microphone like for this dramatic effect. And I don't know if that actually happened. It could have been behind her i don't know but it was just so (laughs) dramatic but as a classical artist you're coming after that and you still have to Mm -hmm. entertain the audience so there's a way to do it with our repertoire because our repertoire is so varied but you do have to know your demographic
0: oh yeah yeah but i think that's the point is like we forget sometimes when we get so wrapped up in academia that You know, our purpose is to entertain people. You know, if we're not entertaining people, it doesn't matter how good we are. It's just going to stay within our community.
2: Absolutely. I
0: actually titled my master's recital, I Just Came Here to Have a Good Time, which didn't go over (laughs) well with my committee, but went over very well with the audience.
2: (laughs) Of course. Um, Well, there are so many wonderful art songs. I used to have a best friend who... She really like opened my mind to art songs that were different. She used to sing one called "Lime Jello Marshmallow Cottage Cheese Surprise." Have you all ever heard that one?
1: No, No. and I'm sad that I'm learning this today.
2: (laughs) Oh my goodness, it is an amazing piece. She also used to do this one called "I'm Tone Deaf," and it's when you get out that one. Well, that one is awesome because it's so interactive with your audience. You get someone to come out there and fan your train. And the whole point of it is that the singer doesn't know what the notes are, but the pianist covers for her. So, again, you get to use your acting skills. The range is all over the place because, obviously, she can't figure out what the notes are. She's saying the notes are purely a personal choice. So she's demonstrating that she can hit anything, and he just he or she is just... (laughs) It is amazing. But that kind of thing, that comedic aspect as well to your performance, if you're one of those sort of performers, it it just brings your audience in and they have so much more respect for our art form because you're trying to entertain them. It's not just about you.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, you yeah. guys have to look that up. You gonna you would love that song. I'm
1: gonna. Really. I'm yeah. so excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, how have I not heard about the song with that title? <laughs>
0: right,
1: right. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Carnegie Hall. Okay. What spurred you to want to do a performance specifically there? Obviously, it's a it's a really well known concert hall. But what was the impetus for like right now is the time where I want to get this performance set and going.
2: Well, it was interesting. I was having a conversation with Nathan James, and he's a writer. And he was saying, you know, Tona, you need to come to New York, because I live in the D.C. area. So he was like, you need to come to New York. And he was there at Out Music Awards. And he was like, Carnegie Hall would love to have you. Why don't we sit down and think of a proposal to send to them? And I thought he was joking, honestly. I was like, okay, you know, that's fine. So he got with me we started thinking about it and and i'd never seen a transgender person headline there and i'd never seen a gay event there either that was the other thing so come to find out from the historians that carney hall is on top of it they told us they said well you know if you all do this we would love to have you um this has never been done i'm like what it's new york city i could never have been done So apparently it had never been done that someone, that a transgender person had headlined an event and that it was LGBTQ in general and Mm -hmm. we were out about it. There had been a woman who was in the vagina monologues who was transgender and she Mm -hmm. had performed there, but no one presenting on their own. And from then on, we wanted to see how we could get it done. But in order for us to try to raise funds for it, we had to let so many people know about it. So you didn't want someone to take your idea. Right. And that kind of thing. And then we started seeing all the obstacles that started to come along to get the money for it. Because one, because I had never performed there, I did not know... How expensive it was mm. even the Kennedy Center there are so many other things you can do that help you as an artist to get something done there mm. some of their stages are absolutely free Carnegie mm. Hall with all the unions and all that kind of stuff everything is expensive so I said well this is a community event I'm going to pick uh, mostly African-American composers after we had put together the whole like ideal of what we could do that could make a difference Mm -hmm. and so i said well african-american and spanish composers have a complete cast of lgbtq people that kind of thing and it was a whirlwind of drama to get the money i mean we still never was able to raise all that we could have And that was unfortunate, but we just made it happen. So we couldn't afford a microphone Hmm. because I don't know if you guys have ever done anything there, but that's extra because they really don't want the sound to go into the other hall. They always try to book multiple events in one night. Mm -hmm. And so that was an extra three to $5,000 or something. And I was like, this is crazy. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. One microphone? And it's not a secret. It's it's all in their verbiage. It's all in in the contracts. But again, we basically had six months because we wanted to also do it for Pride Month. So we Mm -hmm. sent everything in in like December or something, if I remember correctly. And then boom, Pride Month is right here. So we also thought we would be able to get more funding from LGBTQ orgs. To put some money in so that i wasn't paying for everything right this did not really happen so i had to go to go fund me and say hey community please help so that we can get the smallest stage i was going to get the middle stage but i was like okay because i'm a frugal person anyway so i knew yeah. how to cut a budget i was like okay yeah. let's do this let's do this we're not going to do all this extra um designers were sending me gowns and they wanted four or five thousand dollars I was getting all of these messages from people and organizations that were saying, well, if we give you money, are you going to be riding around in a limo? Like it was just ridiculous stuff. And I'm like, well, even if I did, it's for one night. It's for one night. Are you guys serious? But that's when I learned the hard lesson that when you're trying to put on something that is specifically, to cater to people of color, those systemic things get in the way of your art form. And being like most of us who are singers or performers, we usually just go to an event. You know, they hire you, you got your contract, you do what you have to do. But when you put on one yourself, that's when you start to learn. And so it was very eye opening, as I said in other interviews more recently my team they were being tears a lot of times but Mm. i'm also very realistic and being an advocate and doing activism work and sitting on these boards i already knew we would get some resistance but i had no idea we would get no financial support yeah if it wasn't for the community pulling together saying that this was something that was important we wouldn't have been able to do it the way we did at all. So I, it had no yeah. corporate sponsorship, but we did it. It was a wonderful <laughs> night <laughs> yeah and, oh my you know, it doesn't mean you can't do something as I keep telling all the young people, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It's just, you have to go into it knowing that you're going to have to work extra hard to get it done.
0: What year was that?
2: This was in 14, 14, 2014. Wow.
0: See, this is the thing that I always forget. And, you know, this year we've, we've talked a bit about, about the Met, its good sides and its bad sides and its general lack of diversity, not only in the people it hires, but also in the composers it puts on. And I hadn't realized how recent it was that there was a female composer at all, or the fact that it was only, if they believe it was actually this year, they were going to put on their first African American composer. Yeah. Um, obviously, yeah. Corona has changed that, but, but yeah, you forget that in, you know, 2020, we still, if you're not paying attention, it's easy to not notice that these things aren't happening. Whether that be because, you know, we're not opening the doors we should or we're not, you know, funding the projects we should. It's easy to think that these things are going on in the absence of our attention.
2: Absolutely. And the thing about it is, it's all around us and we choose not to look. Because if you think about it, and I use this as an example, If you go to Baltimore, it's a predominantly black town. If you go to Atlanta, but when you look at our stages and you only see one or two black people there, we don't even ask as classical musicians ourselves, we don't even ask any questions about that. But you have too many black and Latino and and Asian and brown people in general. You have too many of us that are graduating from these higher institutions of learning for these professions. So it's a cognitive dissonance that we have to break and be aware of to believe that it's only white people who perform classical music or who can play the violin. All of these things, we have to break that down. And these conversations is what does it. And I'm going to tell you, I know of a violinist who won because in the strings department, when you audition is blind. So I don't know how that is for most opera companies. Only time I sing for an opera company is when they contact me for a role. I don't do all that auditioning and all that. So like what really got me was she won the concert mistress seat after beating 120 violinists or something yes. in the blind. Mm-hmm. Then there's this clause in the contract where you have to sit down with the conductor. And usually it's just a formality for most people. But unfortunately for her, after she went to go sit down with the conductor, he decided that he did not want her to be the concert mistress. Wow. We don't know why. He doesn't have to explain why. It's just the way it is, unfortunately. So, you know, we're still seeing this racism permeate the classical music world. Now we have Eric Owens and we have so many amazing Black baritones and tenors who are singing these lead roles, but for so many years, they weren't allowed to. It wasn't that they couldn't sing them. It wasn't that they weren't in the chorus, but they were not allowed to be up front for various reasons. And what we find is that they did not want these white heroines to be having these heroes be men of color, even in Othello or stories that it should have been not a problem. In fact, it fits the role they still were not allowed to do that. So we still have a long ways to go, but we are starting to slowly see this change. And the more we have these conversations and the more we hold these opera companies accountable for it and these symphonies accountable for it. And lastly, the other problem that I see with us as a future in classical music is the lack of diversity. If Mm -hmm. people don't see themselves on the stage, why would they support your art form? When they can go over here, they can go over here. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's also hindering all of us because if we put on a recital, you might only have 20 or 30 people there. Whereas if people would see more diversity and not feel that it's just a, a white thing or a black thing or any a thing, it's just music. It's phenomenal music. And we're all welcome. So if you only see as far as what from what I've been hearing from other people of color, if I only see just white people on the stage, then I don't feel that you're welcoming me to be there. And we have to change that because our numbers in America are so small. It's not Europe, you know, as it is. You know, the, all of these major symphonies are struggling financially before the pandemic, just to keep the doors open for various reasons. So we got to change it. We, we have to talk about it. We have to get the ugly out there. We have to get board members that are people of color. That's what they did at the Kennedy Center. And it is one of the most diverse programs I have ever seen. I mean, you have, even on their board, I think they have like rappers and everything that's on their board. That's why yeah. you have all of the free concerts.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's the important thing, too, is not just looking at it from the perspective. Obviously, as performers, it's easiest for us to like look at it and say, start hiring more diverse performers. But I think we forget that like, on an institutional level, we need to see it on every part of it. We need to see them on the boards. We need to see them on the creative teams. We need to see directors and conductors and at every single level because we're losing out on so many ideas. Because as much as I think anyone is capable of having good ideas, we are informed by where we grew up, who we are, the experiences we've had in our life, and to not have the full spectrum of that available to us. Because the way I look at Carmen, and I will never sing Carmen because I am a small Mozart soprano, but <laughs> uh, but the way I look at Carmen, the way you look at Carmen are going to be so completely different, and they're both valid and interesting interpretations.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the downfall of opera in America right now, as far as I see it. And when I talk to people about, you know, the concerts they do attend, then on top of it, you have the elitism of thinking that everyone is going to be able to afford a $250 ticket, you know, that kind of thing. Now, I will say where I'm from in Norfolk, Virginia, the Virginia Opera is amazing because what they did was they started to see. The um, salary disparities of income and all those things. And what they did was they reached out to the schools and they have a certain amount of free tickets. And then also the average person, like there's always sections where the, the tickets aren't over $35 or something like that. So that was able to bring so many people in. And then they started including the high schools and the arts, the well, the art high schools, I'll say. They started including the advanced programs into it. So we would actually perform during intermission that brings in people as well. Then those people feel welcome because they see their kid on the stage and now they're like, Hey, why don't you become a member? Blah, 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 blah. So there's a way to do things from the business end. And as a business woman, I definitely understand that you still have to make money in order to pay people and do this or whatever. But there is a way. You'd rather have empty seats or would you rather fill those seats up and make something? To, so you have to figure that unique balance out. And then to add to all of this, if you're a transgender person, if you're an out LGBTQ person, so you're already a person of color. So you risk going into these opera companies, going into these symphonies and facing systemic racism, not getting paid the same as everyone else not getting the role all of these different things and then you turn around and your lgbtq specifically for me being transgender there's a very limited space for you the conductors would be very honest with you about it it oh it's not us it's our audience hmm. okay well until you try how are you going to know how the audience is going to react to my performance so you didn't give it an opportunity Or you don't want to pay me, which is another problem. It's a huge problem, actually. So what they'll do is they'll basically use you as an experiment, but don't want to pay you for your time It's to say, oh, you're going to get exposure. I don't need your exposure. I have the internet and I perform and do regular performances for big calls, but just not in your offer company. So you're not Mm -hmm. going to give me any more exposure than that that's that's bs i need you to pay me for my time and also studies have shown that most transgender people don't make over twenty thousand dollars a year so it's very disrespectful for you to come to us and say hey we need your help we're trying to diversify we have this project which you're not trying to pay we have a lot of problems when it comes down to diversifying i do feel that there's hope because we're having these conversations Many of my friends who have sung at the Met and done so many different things around the world have been so instrumental in helping me to find work and to support me where they can. Networking. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that, and I'm very grateful to them for it. You know, they know I'm going to tell the yeah. truth about what is happening, but they are, they, they are starting to slowly reach out and say, Hey, you know, there's this opportunity or there's that opportunity. And that's what sparks change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think we have to stop, you know, allowing opera companies to hold back until it's acceptable in whatever town to put something on. We should be at the forefront of it. We should be the people. And I think that also the thing that opera companies don't understand is when it comes to people who have faced incredible adversity, whether that be because of racism or homophobia or transphobia or any of these situations you have to very specifically invite people in and create a space that's safe for them that's it because the rest of us get to walk into a space and feel safe because we we don't stand out in any way you know we don't understand what it's like and so it can't just be like oh they'll show up if they want to be here no that's not how it works because nobody's going to you know continually put them in a position that puts them at risk you have to create that space And you have to be the people who say, like, there are incredible performers of all types, and they deserve to be on this stage. And the audiences will catch up, I promise.
2: Yeah, and the thing about it, too, is that that's the whole point of art. So even if you look through I Love History and you look at all of our greatest pieces, some of the ones that I even mentioned, Tchaikovsky concerto, all of these different pieces that were revolutionary during their time, Audiences booed them. They didn't like certain things. Um, they thought Mozart's magic flute was horrible because it was too many notes. So, you know, it's our job as artists to push the envelope, get the audience reaction. You know, even if you did survey sort of things that you sent out since you have these mass email lists, uh, you would be surprised how many people are saying, well, I never understood why I didn't see dot, 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 dot. You know, and also we're going to need our audiences also to speak up as well and say, look, I'm not going to continue to support this opera company if I don't see myself reflected on the stage. This is why I'm not renewing my membership. You know, unfortunately, in a lot of these systemic things, it all comes down to money. It always comes down to money. So if we say we're not going to do And this is why, and we go to the media and tell the media, this is why we're not going to do these things. It would make a difference. You know why? Because it's affecting their pockets. It's not because it's just the right thing to do. I think we're, most of us as artists, we're open-minded. We're open on so many, in so many ways anyway. That's what makes us the artists and how we can portray these roles and do the things that we do. But I think we're waiting for them to do the right thing, and that's just unfortunately history has shown is that's not how change happens. Sometimes you just have to say I've had enough. You know why is this happening? I'm, I'm singing una voce poco fa, and my good girlfriend here can sing it. What is going on? You know what I'm <laughs> saying? Like she's amazing. Here it is. And we do that for each other all the time. People who understand what systemic racism is and who understands these these things will we'll say, okay, we're not going to perform. We're going to allow this person to go so they can get an opportunity. So we, we're going to need our quote-unquote allies to do the same thing and say, look, you know, I've had this opportunity. Let me put on something myself even. Like if I put on an event... Let me make sure that it's as diverse as possible and see what the audience is. It's a huge success. And now you can send that in and show people that you can have a diverse yeah. event that's successful.
0: Yeah. And a failure, a thing where the community reacts badly to it isn't really a failure. I mean, I grew up in a town that boycotted Rent when it first came out. I grew up in Nashville. They were not fans. <laughs> did mm-hmm. not go over well. Now you could put it on a dozen times over. I think there's a high school somewhere around here that's done it. There was a high school that did cabaret last year. Absolutely. But, but yeah, that's the thing. It, it may not go over well the first time. And you can't reject the entire idea. Because everyone knew Rent was, you know, a good show. It was just that the community was not not about it at the time. But things changed yeah, because ready. people kept pushing the envelope. Because you can't wait for, you know... I was about to say the lowest common denominator to be ready, but Absolutely. yeah, it, the change happens because we introduce people to new things, because we open their minds to it, and because we keep pushing even when the the city's not wholly prepared for it, and Absolutely. we'll get there.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I want to 100% talk to you about performing for President Obama. Not only, Absolutely. like, just what was that like in general, but also how do you prepare for some of these high-pressure moments, like... Performing at Carnegie Hall or performing for a president?
2: Well, I'ma tell you, you, you need to be centered spiritually because it's always the behind the scenes that's more dramatic than what we actually do on the stage. And when you are someone who is doing something that has not been done, you have to understand that there will be some kind of backlash sometimes and some drama. At that performance, we did, it wasn't at the White House, it was at the Sheraton in New York City of like the big ballroom. And it was the first time that a president had ever come to the LGBT leadership conference. So it was a really big deal for our community. I didn't know if they had anyone that was gonna bring him in with a fanfare sort of thing. So I offered, I contacted them And I said, you know, this is something that's very important and we need to show him that we are in support of what he's trying to do. I found out that Neil Patrick Harris was going to be there as an MC, and also Audra McDonald was going to be performing. So I was like all about it. I was like, okay, I need to be here regardless. Yeah. But even if I'm not there, I want to perform. I'll bring a string ensemble because I also want to make sure it was a classy presentation, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Well, when you're preparing for this, musicians cut off on me. <laughs> what? Yeah, you know, one of the ladies that I wanted to perform, she had something going on with her daughter. So it was a real reason. And th- then also the background checks came back for some some people and they were too mm-hmm. scared to have this person on the stage oh my god it was too many things so i just kept my focus i'm like okay i know i'm gonna be here whoever shows up that's why in the videos i'm by myself it's acapella it's not because that was what i wanted okay Okay. it was because of the situation it's almost like an interview the way they look at music so you're there with people who are just about to speak so they don't have a warm-up time they don't have anything. So you're like, wait a minute, hold on, stop the press. I'm going to be singing or playing the violin. I need a, another area to kind of get my thoughts into warm up. They don't take any of that into consideration for those political events. Mm-hmm. It is down to every five minutes. Everything is marked on the back, almost like you're about to do an opera and you know, you have the stage stuff everything is meticulous nothing can get off and if it does too much they just start cutting different things oh wow so you just don't have a lot of leeway which is why i was not able to get my picture with audrey mcdonald oh I was, so, cause she was, she was going this way and I was going, and she was like, afterwards, we'll get a picture. But I mean, and she looked amazing, by the way, she was snatched. Oh. She looked amazing. I was like, she oh always my, is. Oh my goodness. <laughs> she looked like new money. Like she was, I was just like, girl, them batons them and that snatchback. back. She was doing, it. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> she looked amazing and she sang beautifully, but In order to prepare, like I said, you just have to find a way to ground yourself and to understand that, you know, it may not be perfect. Things will come along the way. way, Your musicians might not show up. You know, all these things that for some of us is so triggering that you can't get through a performance. And but when you're doing mainstream stuff, you just got to go with it.
1: Yeah. Wow. And actually
2: meeting him was amazing because he was so nice and my conversation with him was great. The whole experience was a great experience. He was heckled, which is why a lot of the footage and stuff, they shut all the way down. So I didn't get a lot of publicity for it. But thankfully, there were so many people in the gay media that was there that they were the ones who kind of got it out there and let people Mm -hmm. know that this was phenomenal for various reasons which included me singing the national anthem
1: yeah yeah that's incredible yeah what a performance yeah what a, was, and like yeah it was too honestly what a Ooh. time yeah yeah <laughs> and to hear you know like i think something that always proves true in, in these big events in your life is that you just have the willpower to push through you're like listen i can only account for myself and i know what i can do and you end up making it because yeah. of you know that you, willpower sometimes that you hard have, work.
2: Because you gotta. Yeah, you gotta yeah. Like, yeah. I, I have to eat. So I have to yeah. make my own opportunities. And that's why I started the studio in the first place, teaching and putting on my own events. Because if I waited around, you know, it is very disheartening to perform with some of the greatest musicians of our time, but never to be asked to come back and do these different things. So you have to learn, okay, you take that opportunity, market yourself, let everyone know about it. Don't wait on them to market you. You know, you have to be very aggressive in the sense of, I need this for my career. Like I need my photos. I need all of these different things. And once you kind of get it down pat, then it's just like, you just snap into that mode. Let me go get my photo op. Let me do this. Let me contact the press. I do all that myself.
0: Mm. You know, and I think that brings up a good point. We've talked about these huge milestones that you have marked in your career. But beyond just, you know, the fact that we said, like, you're the first transgender African American woman to do this, you're also just a good musician. Like, at the heart of all of this isn't all these other things. It's that you are a good musician who deserves to be on a stage.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, well, and that's where it all started. That passion just to want to get in front of people and present your mm-hmm. art form. But then you have to learn the business in. So it's, it's usually yeah. not. It's, and people don't understand that. You know, they assume yeah. so many things. Yeah.
0: And I'm not saying it's wrong to market it as that. I'm just saying, like, I think. I think that's what makes me sad when we talk about not getting invited back because it's a promotional event of like, look, we support the community, but also we're not going to hire you on an actual year-long contract. Right. A- and that's the frustration at the heart of that is it shouldn't be, you know, just a, a, the month of June. It should right. be year-round mm-hmm. all the time.
2: Well, and that's you know. part of the systemic stuff. You know, again, mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of people who claim they understand how racism really works when or any group that has power if you don't really understand the back end part this is one of the reasons why I'm doing these interviews now and letting people know that no I wasn't just born with a silver spoon and so therefore I have twenty thousand dollars to put on these events you know a lot of my events are in a local church it's a recital you know or what have you i might have a 100 people there at the most you know because i'm the one who's putting them on Mm -hmm. myself i think that i'm a little uh before my time but i'm very optimistic that in the next 10-15 years you will have management companies that are not too scared to promote transgender people specifically of color in this instance with me but to promote us and they, they need to figure it out because when you talk to them they don't even understand why they're not doing it you know or they, or they pretend that they don't it's just like well if you're a manager and this is what you do and you can see my clips i've done everything media wise that you claim that you want me to do why is it that you don't think that i will be successful and now that i am successful all of those people are in shock of, about it. I remember the first time I was in a paper in Norfolk, Glad the Gay Lesbian Association Against Defamation. They asked me to do this regional thing in Virginia because of gay marriage and rights that they were trying to pass for gay folk. And they asked me if I would be willing to tell my story. And it was ladies from all around the country different singers who were writing me saying, oh my God, you could have just ruined your career. Hmm. And these are friends and also people who are performing AIDA and doing different things who were just like, you know, this is a deal breaker for a lot of these companies is that you're so out about it. Why don't you just not be out? Why don't you just kind of get your foot in and that kind of thing? So we still, as a people, we know that some of these things are going on if we're really honest with ourselves. We know that some people don't have it in the it's including myself, I have a lot of privileges that other transgender women of color do not have. And so I'm always very honest about that as well. So, you know, we know that some of this stuff is happening. It's our job to get the word out there and say enough is enough.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, And I think earlier you brought up such a good point that was, you know, I think in the past and now, especially like for allies, there's so much of this, well, I'm just going to wait until they do the right thing, because like, they're going to do the right thing, right? But it's like, that's not a good way to think about it. And even, you know, when people and all of these opera houses and and companies were releasing statements for, you know, standing in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, there were no actionable steps for so many of them. You know what I mean? And so you can just kind of point fingers all you want and be like, well, they posted something like they said something, but then when you really analyze them, you can't just assume that everybody's going to do the right thing, even when they're called out. Right. So, so much of it is standing up, and you know,
2: being vocal. Yeah, be vocal.
1: Try to represent the best you can
0: as people who inevitably benefit from quite a bit of privilege. The reality is, is you can't just wait until you're powerful enough to do something because there's always going to be something to lose. If you don't build your career on making this industry more open, more accepting, uh, something that pushes the boundaries and doesn't just wait for something to become, you know, acceptable. uh, If you don't build your life and your career around that, you'll never really do it because there's not going to be a point where you, you know, once you're a professional, you, you still have something to lose. Now is the time. Build your whole system around it. Absolutely. Build from the beginning. And your audience
2: is going to love it.
0: And I think that's been important to keep in mind while we do this. You know, it's a little scary sometimes to talk about the Met and the fact that their statement wasn't good. It wasn't clear. It didn't have steps in it. But we have to say it because if you don't, if you just let them get away with it because the Met is this huge institution, it never changes.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, further, that diversity those sounds, those experiences on a stage, is like nothing you've ever heard. I, I mean, again, we also as a people need that diversity in that audience to, in order for our art form to stay alive today. So, you know, we can look at it on many different levels, but we are struggling to keep the seats full. So if someone was to ask me to be a consultant, which I have been but for schools of music, for colleges and different things, that's one of the first things I do when I'm looking through things. And I say, well, okay, you're having problems getting people in, you know, what is the level? What is the training level? You know, these, this thing. And then when I go and I do a masterclass and I'm looking around and I see a lack of diversity, that's one of the I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but that's one of the easiest things you can do to get more people in the seats. You know, is going to different neighborhoods, going to the neighborhoods around the college, which a lot of times are diverse in many ways, and opening your doors to them, not just expecting them to come to you. So even when we look at the college programs and we look at a level of training, we look at all of these things, Diversity is imperative and it's important to keep them going.
0: Yeah, and I think something that we've kind of let go unspoken here is that part of that is funding. Part of that is money. You know, you mentioned that most transgender women aren't making over 20000 a year. If you want to go to college for music, that's not enough. And it's hard to get jobs and it's hard to get scholarships. So we have to start looking at specifically funding the groups we want to be bringing in because to ignore the financial aspect of that. What's something I've heard a lot is like, we're going to be listening to our community on this. Don't listen to them. Pay them. Hire consultants. Hire people who know. And pay them for their experience and their time and their input. Don't just make people give you that for free. That's not what it's about. You've built your life around advocacy. You deserve to be paid for that.
2: Well, I'll tell you one time, and this is one of the reasons why we're no longer best friends, but I used to have a girlfriend who started the studio and... I was so appalled at how she was treating not only myself, but other people. It was this notion that if you are a person of color, therefore you would be responsible for only teaching a certain type of music. So if you brought someone in that was black, then, and in her words, I don't want competition for the, the opera program or the classical music. I want you to work with my hip-hop, musical theater, gospel, this type of thing, okay? That's a problem. Yeah. That is a problem. And when you bring that to the attention of people, then they get very defensive and they don't even realize how racist that is. Don't assume that just because someone is of one ethnicity that they're better than something else. You wouldn't want me to do that to you and say you could only teach my classical people because you're a white person. So again, different power levels, whether it's a small studio, whether it's a university, you look around you and look at the professors, see who doesn't get tenure. Like, come on, y'all. You know, that was one of the reasons why the trajectory that was given to me by my teachers because of how well I was as a teacher to my friends, because I wanted all of us to sound good, right? So <laughs> they would say to me, you know, you're going to make a phenomenal teacher. And I'm like, no, I'm a performer. You know, you're going to make a great teacher one day because you inspire people, okay? In my ensemble. So we're playing the Schumann Piano Quintet or we're playing Mendelssohn. If your notes aren't right, guess what? That affects all of us. So let's sit down and let's get this together. Let's play around with the melody so that you can get that this is not all flowing together. You know, if I played it this way and then you come in like this, it's going to be a problem. So we would work on those things. And what I've learned is that when I went to do research about being a professor as a black person and especially as a black transgender person, I was appalled that a lot of the professors that worked with me about 10 or 15 years prior were still adjunct. It's a problem in general because it's the cheaper thing. It's not just black people or whatever. But it was just so horrible to see that so many of my mentors were still adjunct 15 years after I graduated.
0: Yeah, academia is hell. Oh, it is
2: the worst. So I, then I thought about it. I said, well, Diane, that's not going to work. You know, I could do it. I love teaching. I love inspiring. And that's what got me to start Ayuda Studios because I was like, even if I'm dealing with beginners, intermediates, I can inspire them to be the greatest that they can be. And now some of them have been touring all over Europe, different places. R&B, pianist, whatever it is, they've been just doing different things, not just classical. Because, of course, yeah. I had to really open my mind that, guess what? You can't just work with classical people and have a business. It's just not a big business for it in certain areas. So it's like you have to learn how to diversify even within yourself. You have to think diversity, diversity, diversity.
0: Yeah, on all yeah. levels.
2: So on all levels.
0: What can we do? Because a good portion of our audience are young voice teachers, young instrumental teachers and otherwise. Like, what do we do to make our studios a more welcoming space for everyone? You know, we've talked a little bit about reaching out to communities specifically. Going into schools is definitely a great option.
2: Absolutely. Okay. well, the first thing I would say is understanding your demographic, wherever it is that your specific studio is. But now... That we're online because of the pandemic that's the entire world so that's something that's encouraging that's something that really makes me feel good that i was always on the forefront of trying to figure out how to integrate technology into what i was doing seven years ago seven eight years ago i was saying the future is going to be online but no one really wanted to give it a try so i might have three or four people that would do it out of 30 40 people And usually that was because they started with me and then they moved, you know, somewhere. And so they kind of had to do it. Now, because of coronavirus, it's not safe for me to go into all these homes because my company is mobile. I would go into these mansions and teach their little kids. And then, but now because of this, it's dangerous not only for me, but also what if I'm asymptomatic and I'm going around. So you have to understand the demographic of the area. Some areas are more musical theater based. Some are, you know, country, folk, pop, R&B, just what's prevalent. And utilize the techniques that you have to help them to free their voices, to have more agility and to sing in a healthy way. Okay, and you can use your classical training to do that and just cater it to what they need. Okay. yeah, but if you are one of those teachers, which I have one that's probably going to listen to this and she went from having a very thriving studio to nothing and begging me to help her to find students, you know, that's one of the problems. The second problem is how you package your lessons and how much you charge. Okay. again, it's a business. So you have to figure out based off of where you live, what works how much you can charge, maybe instead of charging individually, do things in packages because people like a deal. Mm -hmm. So you have to make it seem to people that they're getting a great deal. We know that we are experts in whatever we do, but guess what? Most people don't understand music instruction at all. They think it's like academic instruction. Absolutely. So you have to break those things down to them and get them to understand And I will also say y'all have to get out here and start performing too. Like I see a lot of teachers who I get a lot of my students because they've seen me sing the Messiah Mm -hmm. or do something. And so their parents or whatever came to me because I let it be known. I haven't have it inside of the program or a playbill or whatever it is. This is what I do
1: come to me that's very smart
0: (laughs) that presence both like in the community and online because you know for us we're young singers we don't really have that many professional credits to our name at this point so Mm -hmm. name recognition alone won't be enough but to go out there and perform and have somebody be like oh they're good I want to learn from them
2: absolutely
0: that was how I found my first voice teacher was she came and performed with our school so there you go
2: That's what I was about to say. Think about how you found your teacher. Also, how are you as a teacher? Have you been trained and understand how to teach people? Okay. It doesn't mean that you had to go to a four-year institution as a music ed major. I wasn't. I was a performance major. But one of the things I did was my mentor, Daryl Husky, I used to call him and bug him every day almost. And what he taught me was he would say, in order for you to be a good teacher, you have to be able to pretend that you are the student. And I'm going to tell you, most teachers do not do that. They do not do that. They're talking down to the person. They're, you know, I'm up here, you're here. But if you can't put yourself in the mindset of what it's like when you first have to learn how to breathe, When you first had to learn how to just hold the instrument. So what he did an exercise with me, he said, "Okay, on that first lesson, your student takes out their, let's say if it's violin, your student takes out the violin. How do they know how to hold it? How do they know how to hold the bow? All of these things. And so he kept asking me all these questions. And I'm thinking, well, duh, they should know to do this, 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 or to tighten the bow. You can't do that. So you have to break down every little process and if you're not willing to do that. Don't be a teacher. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Because you're going to put people out here in the wrong
0: way. So it's so important to keep learning. To remind ourselves what it's like to be at the very beginning of something and put yourself in that position of being vulnerable and not knowing anything about something. I'm kind of a little more like you when you were younger. I'm very much a performer right now. I've not really gotten into teaching. I want to focus on both this podcast and singing. I think there's so much to be gotten as a performer from teaching because that is the thing that makes us take our information this vast expanse and simplify it on such a level that you can tell someone else about it
1: On a very
0: simplified level. And that's like a true sign of knowledge is not just being able to understand something, but being able to communicate it to others. I mean, at its heart, that's what music is communication.
2: I would also interject too that there's a lot of bad vocals teaching. Yes. Out here. (laughs) You know, they're charging, you know, extreme amounts of money just to have you come in here and do a couple little things. And then they smile on your face. But you don't really understand what happened, why, what's going on with your body. You know, you're not connected, all of these different things. So I will say that I've been very, very disappointed. I guess that's the best word with some of my students leaving or someone coming to meet me and they've had all this like vocal damage. And that's another thing you have to study vocal science because what happens is If a studio contacts me for their artist, I already know this is an artist who's going into the recording studio and they cannot produce regularly. Mm -hmm. That's what the real problem is. Not their voice, unless they've had vocal damage. So you also have to assess the situation. And sometimes you're not doing everything you would do with the average student because I'm almost like a consultant at that point. I'm there to make sure they can get through that particular recording session or a song. And so they'll say it's about one note. Oh, we want this person to be able to sing this one note. And we all know as singers that that's not how it works. So again, you have to be able to break those things down and say, okay, well, we're going to do these exercises so you can get to that note, okay? But other people will go in there, charge an exorbitant amount of money, give them one little trick, and that's it.
0: And I'm talking about the
2: thousands. It's bad.
0: It's results-oriented thinking, too, which is ultimately never going to fix the problem. It's just going to lead to more and more problems. You're right. It's never the one note. It's literally everything else around it that's causing the problem. <laughs> literally, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're doing a future episode on is my voice teacher bad and how to help people assess. Because when you first go into voice lessons and you don't know anything, how would you know any better? You know? And, of course, there's also just, like, the downside of, being in music and the people who think that to be a musician you have to break people apart into pieces
2: ugh oh, ridiculous it's,
0: it's just a nightmare there's a lot of interesting teaching happening in music
2: especially in voice especially in voice
0: especially because voice is difficult because of course when you're looking at a violin and you're looking at bad technique in the hands and everything you can point to it and the problem with voices of course so much of it is internal so That's unless right. you have that person who knows that mechanism and knows why what you're doing is wrong or at least can like take you through steps to kind of figure out, you know, is it tongue tension? Is it throat tension? You know, are you not breathing properly? Unless you have somebody who knows that, you're going to end up in a nightmare. Absolutely. But yeah, that's the thing is like, you cannot pretend to know how to play a violin. But some people can fake their way into being a reasonably good singer.
2: Absolutely. And to get a job as a teacher. I had a coloratura soprano who I've been training since she was 15. And she went to a a university and the music department, the lady who was training her specialized more in jazz. And so my student is a crossover singer. And it's not that all jazz teachers cannot teach the voice. Let me say that. But this particular woman, she couldn't sing over an A. After just one semester working with this lady, oh, wow. her mom called me and said, you know, my daughter's voice doesn't sound right. Like something is not right. And so I at the time I had a little studio in Baltimore. And so she came up to Baltimore and I said, whoa, where did all this tension come from? None of this was there. And we got that in like in three lessons, she was back to the G's above high C that she could sing. But there was so much tension because this teacher is listening differently and it's a problem. And it's been a continual problem of my students going to other places and getting messed up. I don't know what the answer is for it because of course they can't fight the teacher when they're going there as an undergrad in their first semester. And so it's just been a problem. It's been a real problem.
0: I think we talked a little bit about it in a different episode, but it's okay to walk away from teachers. You'll have to be careful with it because there are teachers who will hold it against you. Absolutely. Which is just all the more reason you should walk away. But, exactly. But a lot of kids, <laughs> yeah. a lot of kids in my undergrad and my grad school program switched and for the most part because I went to fairly happy music departments, luckily. It was okay, but never pay for something that's only hurting you. Oh, yeah. Even if it's going to be an ego problem for the other person. And it's also okay. Like, not every teacher you even run into that with that problem is bad. Maybe that person is a wonderful jazz teacher, but unless you're going to be singing jazz the whole time, it's okay to walk away because you want to be able to do color drama and jazz and musical theater. You'll Absolutely. find that teacher.
2: They have to understand your voice type. When you have a rare, unique voice what you find is that there's so many people who are just good with what and especially if you're a performer and you're trying to teach someone they're just good at their voice type but a true teacher has to learn to develop the ear to work with all voice types you may have some that are your favorite and that you can actually demonstrate for them and so it's easier for you as far as demonstration but you have to develop that ear to listen to a bass or a baritone or a dramatic soprano compared to, especially if you're calling yourself a vocal teacher, you know? Yeah. So you, you have to be able to hear these type of things, which means that you have to do research yourself. I go to master classes all the time. I'm going to tell you some of them are bad. Where <laughs> I'm serious. No joke. We're keeping it real. Yeah. Some of them are bad because the information is so confusing that I know what they're trying to say. But how is this person going to understand you can't even get them in the mask? So you're saying all this stuff to try to do it when there's specific things that I can do to my students to point them exactly where they need to be without them knowing that's what I'm doing. Then when they feel the difference and they can feel these things and they understand these concepts, then we can feel around and talk about birds and bees and balloons. And I mean, people get crazy with these ideals. The
0: visualizations are wild. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And endless. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I'm going to just implore you to go and listen to the... Crazy masterclass episode where we took people's stories of like their worst masterclass experiences. Oh my it's god, I would love wild. It.
1: Yeah, but it but plays. you're absolutely
0: right, and I think as teachers we have to be willing to you know turn to our colleagues and say like, okay, so I've got a tenor with this problem. I'm not super sure what's going on. Can you you know come in? A- my teachers used to pull other teachers to absolutely. listen to me all the time, and my teacher was almost identical to my voice type. It's just always good to get another ear in there and have somebody listen when you're unsure. You know, and listening, I have a tenor master class saved on my computer right now to watch later, and I don't have a tenor student. <laughs> but
1: Absolutely. it's just
0: continually learning and continually teaching ourselves new things and admitting that we don't always have the answers. And the best thing is to never pretend.
2: Exactly. So, but an important
0: exactly. thing here, too, you know, and I wanted to ask you this specifically, but, you know, some of us have students who are in transition. Yes. And that's a whole new situation. There's not a lot of science. We're not covering it in pedagogy classes. Absolutely. And so in what ways can we be more empathetic and how do we better teach a transitioning voice?
2: Okay. So there's a man, I think his name is Alexis Constansis. He has a book. Is it Alex or Alexis? I can't think. I know it's Constansis is his last name. And we were actually talking about actually Mindy. He's a trans man from England. And He was amazed because I've always had transgender students, like, and I've gone to him for, to work with the female-to-male voices and looking at his stuff. But he was a mezzo before he transitioned. And to look at his book and also to talk to him about different issues that trans people have. One of the things that you'll find with transgender voices is there's an issue with stamina. Okay? And a lot of Mm. that is because As the cords thicken or thin, depending on which you're training, what happens, there's a transitional period that you have to be very gentle with because the hormones are changing the voice in whatever way. Now, the most dramatic change is with the female to male voices. Some of them can drop an octave and a half, like, I mean, they just, they can drop on you. But usually it's it's a little more gentle. And if you're working with them, you have to consistently keep testing their range. Mm -hmm. Okay. Seeing where it's comfortable in that moment, because you don't know hormonally how it's affecting their voice. So, I mean, it's just like any other voice lesson. If you're a good voice teacher and and you are doing all these vocalizes and things like that to get them all around their voices, seeing where if there's any tongue tension, all these different things. So it's the same thing. But the difference is he might be able to hit certain notes in the beginning of the working with you that might not be the same later. And then it will settle out. So that's the first thing is working on the range part and really being compassionate about that. The other thing is psychologically, you have to understand that Some of the, your transgender students really want to achieve a certain goal that they might not be able to do at that time. Okay. So this student of mine who really loves his lower register, but he's really a high tenor. So he wants to keep singing these things because it might make him feel more masculine. And so You can still allow him to do those things, but you have to show him through the vocalizing, through singing different songs that just because you have this range doesn't mean that you should be staying there. We know that with people staying up in the rafters. So, you know, what you have to do is let them know that. Like, okay, let's do this song, but understand that you can't be pushing. You can't push your voice down here. Okay? Sing it. But your voice is a little higher. And then the last thing is teaching them to love and appreciate and to learn their unique instrument. OK, so again, it's more than just a voice lesson. OK, it is like a counseling session.
0: Yeah, I mean, all voice lessons are. <laughs> all voice lessons are. <laughs> yeah.
2: So it, it, it But really understanding that that person in that moment may not totally get The fact that there are certain limitations that might be coming until their voice settles to where it's going to be and allowing them to go through that, you know, allowing them to go through that. And if you're being empathetic and compassionate, then it's not seen as you're trying to read them or limit them or tell them what they can or cannot do. Because I have had teachers who tried to do that as well. Oh, you know, because of X, Y, Z, you'll never sing above an F or all this ignorant stuff. That doesn't make any sense because the castrati were doing everything. So again, people are not comfortable with certain things. They don't understand certain things. And it's funny, if I told a teacher, especially when I was in New York and going to different places, and I wanted to just have someone just make sure I was in line, if I didn't tell them I was trans, they would think I was a dramatic soprano. Then I would go and tell someone I was, and then all of a sudden they're freaking out doing all this research you know, and all of this Mm -hmm. stuff and like trying to understand what they're hearing instead of going with it and just letting it happen. Yeah. One of my best voice teachers from Shenandoah, she used to say the voice is the voice is the voice. It doesn't matter what the gender is. It's just this is the voice that you have and you have to make sure it's healthy, whatever that Mm -hmm. is. So those are the things that I would say. Some of my transgender clients, have been such a blessing to me. They're so wonderful to work with. They're usually very appreciative because they've been discriminated so badly on so many levels. And so I really enjoy working with transgender clients.
0: Yeah. You bring up a great point there, which is it's really just about meeting people where they're at. And, and that's the thing about working with any young voices is they change, they develop what works one day doesn't work the next and being conscious of that teaching people to find the beauty in exactly where their voice is today I love that I love that so much (laughs) but I I, and also the scholarship you know just mentioning your friend's book I mean I think that's another really great point is like we also have to push and look for and invite in scholarship on these subjects so that we can all be better informed and But I think the last thing you said, too, a voice is a voice. What you hear is what's going on and you just have to go with it for whatever that is.
2: Absolutely. And also do, as you said earlier, do your research to start listening to transgender voices. It's one of the things that's such a shame that you're just not getting on the concert stages as much. So people are not used to certain timbres. So you want to just take the time to start listening, watching different things. And treating that voice student just like any other voice student, you know, and and, and being honest yeah. with them. If you hear certain things that it's a certain timbre that's different, it's just like when I work with a held tenor compared to a light lyric tenor, like there are certain timbres that I'm like, oh, you're actually a tenor. You've been singing baritone, <laughs> but you're a tenor, but sweetie, you're a certain type. Sometimes you got to think just like with a soprano or a mezzo or someone, people have an identity. To their voices. You know. I've always been told. That I'm a da. da, 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 da. You know. All of that. Yeah. Okay. Sweetie. (laughs) Well. That's not what this is showing me. Okay. So. Mm -hmm. I don't argue with them. You know. Okay. This is that. other, But if you can't get through. You can't get through. Okay. Same thing. This is the same exact thing. By just showing them. Letting them go through the motion, Sometime. You know. And saying. Okay. I think it would be easier. If we go this route, okay? And then we can work towards dot, dot, dot. Eventually, they're going to get more realistic about what their voices can do.
0: Yeah, It's about finding the heart of what draws people to things. You know, you mentioned your one student who loved the lower parts because they're more masculine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's so many incredible tenor roles Uh that are these heroic, crazy, brave things, and the tenor voice can do such amazing things. So it's getting to the heart of, like, that identity and taking it out of these kind of outdated ideas of what it means and just showing them the beauty in that identity across that yeah and he
2: sounds amazing oh my goodness he sounds amazing he loves more (laughs) musical theater i wish he would have stayed more with copper but he loves more musical theater and he just sounds so great and he's like tona i'm finally loving my voice his speaking voice dropped like probably a fifth in a six month period. So I was really nervous that it wasn't going to settle because it just seemed like it just kept going down, down, down. Now that he's kind of settled hormonally as well as as a person, we've had lessons with this young person in particular where he would just start crying, just being, he's like, my mind tells me that what you're saying is true, but I really want to do this. And you have to, you know, allow some of that to happen. But they know when you're the type of teacher that's really there for them and supporting and want them to win compared to someone that's saying, "Mm, I told you so, you know, that kind of
0: thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Who among us hasn't broken down in a lesson?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Of course. That's literally. You ain't had a lesson. That's that's a rite of passage. You have, you have. (laughs) Exactly. You know, because it is such a vulnerable place that you get into when you have this passion for our art form it's gonna happen and it's okay give you a big hug and you know and just say see you sound amazing learn to love the voice that you have no matter what that is what it is whatever it is
1: yeah and i think another way that voice teachers who you know claim to be trans allies can actually show that is spending the time doing the research so that they can take on trans students because like you said you face so much discrimination that you want to be that person that they can come to and know that you're going to treat them how they should be treated like any other student Absolutely. you know what I mean and listen to them and already have the knowledge and have done your research so that, so that you can teach them properly yeah and even though there isn't as much research as hopefully there will be in a couple years you know on the trans voice and how to teach it in music there are resources out there you know there are people who are already doing the work so you can start to educate yourself so that you can be a more inclusive teacher i would
2: definitely recommend people to listen to brianna sinclair who's singing out in on the west coast we were talking about possibly doing something together i think she's a lyric soprano and she got her start from singing the national anthems for like you know those big stadium type of things And also studying at San Francisco Conservatory of Music and going through that program. I was so proud of her, you know, that she not only completed it, but she graduated really well. And she just has an amazing instrument. And also, I'm going to say this, and I know this is going to be kind of controversial. There were transgender artists who just didn't tell you they were transgender in the past. So, you know, with that being said, especially overseas, there are some um, mentos that I love and I can, because I know the transgender voice, I'm like, okay, that was one of the girls, you know, but she, she had to get through and it was a time Mm -hmm. where she could not be out and proud and still have this career. And, Mm -hmm. but I still follow a lot of those girls and. You know, they, they did it in their own recordings. And so some of our favorite musicians are, that are out there could have been trans or are. And yeah. so the assumption that someone can only do X, Y, Z because of the gender they were born, we have to let that go. And that's all a part of what we're seeing in culture now. You know, unfortunately, we have so many transgender women of color who are being murdered at this time in history So it's it's a difficult time. So if that person cries in front of you, you know, they're going through a lot. They're going through a lot with their family and different things. And and sometimes the crying is not a sadness, it's a happiness because they're singing and they're being in their truth. And you can't get any more vulnerable than to do it with your voice.
0: It has been such a pleasure to interview you. We love your work. We actually found you while we were doing our Pride episode and it's such a pleasure to meet you and to have you on here because I think you embody the first episode we ever did and part of what we built this whole thing around was teaching people how to advocate for themselves because the music industry is difficult and hard and exclusive in a way that it doesn't need to be. And I think you just embody that in such a lovely, bright way. Like you put out so much love and bright energy into the world and you faced so much and you're still just so positive and fun and honest. And it's been just Incredible.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I I love being here. You guys ever want me to come and speak on anything or any of my projects or anything that I see that's happening? Just give me a call. I think that this work that you all are doing is so important. And I think sometimes people like yourselves don't see how revolutionary you are. They don't, you don't see that, you know, back in the day we had abolitionists who had to keep quiet and kept the, the underground railroad going, you know, it's very important to do the work that you're doing to encourage people to perform, to give them different techniques, to talk to different teachers, all of this stuff and talk about what's happening behind the scenes with, with our art form. All this stuff is important. Keep it up. Don't give up. That's the most important thing. (laughs) You know, I want to see y'all podcast, do something or, you guys go to a whole nother platform five years from now.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, we hope, hopefully we'll be hopefully we'll get a chance to perform together in a yes. post-pandemic world.
1: Yeah, that'll be so Definitely.
2: awesome. Uh. Well, you all have a wonderful day.
1: Once again, thank you so much to Tona Brown for joining us on this interview episode. I just feel like I learned so much. Her story is incredible, and man, just talk about somebody who is so passionate about music and just. A truly lovely and charismatic person at heart. Yeah. If you don't already, check Tona Brown out. Um, you can follow her at Tona City on Instagram. Check out her Aida Studios Facebook page. You can find her on YouTube, and her website is tonabrown.com to keep up to date with everything that she's doing. Once again, we're Opera Offstage. If you want to follow us and listen to more of these type of interview episodes or other type of funny content you can find us on instagram and facebook at opera offstage or our website opera-offstage.com and we will talk to you guys next time bye bye